This is ultimately a finance problem of how do we make the resources available immediately so that we can start to get our forests in healthier shape and reduce the risk of catastrophic wildfire. Welcome to the second episode of Climate Positive, a podcast produced by Hannon Armstrong, a leading investor in climate solutions. I'm Chad Reed. I'm Hilary Langer. I'm Gil Jenkins. And in this series, we bring our unique and curious perspectives to host candid conversations with the leaders, innovators, and changemakers driving our climate positive future. In this episode, we sit down with Zach Knight, co-founder and CEO of Blue Forest, a mission-driven environmental investment firm that has spearheaded the development of the Forest Resilience Bond. Zach started his career on Wall Street shortly before the onset of the financial crisis. As he sought to move to a more sustainable field of work, he married his financial acumen with his love of environmental conservation to develop long-term sustainable solutions to the catastrophic wildfires plaguing the western U.S. In this discussion, we touch on the causes of catastrophic wildfire, proactive forest management solutions, the role of indigenous communities in forest management, both past and present, the details of the Forest Resilience Bond's innovative public-private partnership model, the role of policy in scaling these solutions, how children can open our eyes to the need for environmental sustainability over the long term, and much more. So with that, here is Zach Knight, co-founder and CEO of Blue Forest, sitting down with Hilary Langer and myself, Chad Reed. Zach, thanks for joining Climate Positive. Hey, it's great to be here, Chad. You were born and raised in the nation's capital, and your parents were both very active politically. What was life like growing up in Washington, D.C.? in the 80s and the 90s? And and how did your parents' position in the political world impact your upbringing? Yeah, I can't speak too much to the 80s because I was born in 83, so I don't know too much about what was happening then. But it was great and challenging to grow up around politics. And I say it for a couple of reasons. First and foremost, getting to meet all the people you get to meet in those scenarios. It's really eye-opening. It's exposure that most people don't get. And I feel like I'm very privileged and very fortunate from that standpoint. The flip side of this is it's a very busy job that can take folks like your parents away from you for long periods of time or be a cause for a lot of great travel, which again can be a good thing or a challenging thing. And I think for me, it was really growing up in that setting and around the Sunday shows, having Crossfire and Meet the Press that actually pushed me about as far away from politics (laughs) as I think you could get. And that was my first job after college, working on Wall Street. So I certainly went in a different direction, you might say. What did drive you to start your career on Wall Street specifically? And did you single-handedly bring down the big banks? (laughs) I didn't do it single-handedly. It's it's always a team effort. But uh, thanks for bringing that up, Jed. (laughs) No, I, I think for me, it really was that dichotomy with politics and sort of the power of D.C. and how things work in the political arena versus what you see or what I thought you might see on Wall Street from that perspective. I went into that job not knowing lots of people or really any people in the field, which I know is kind of rare for folks that start their their career on Wall Street. I did really enjoy the experience. I got a crash course in every type of fixed income derivative product you could imagine when I was working at Merrill Lynch. And that ranged from interest rate hedging and derivatives to corporate synthetic CDOs and credit default swaps to, you know, all the mortgage products that you're referencing in your question, uh, the collateralized debt obligations and and things of that nature that when I was working at Merrill were a really big part of the business. Um, So it was an interesting way to cut your teeth. And it ended up being, for me, a little bit of a baptism 
by fire. I was working directly with clients. I started that job in 2006. Obviously, as you guys know, the credit crisis really started in 2007. I saw we I know we saw the bulk of it in 2008 and 2009, but by the time I was 23 or 24, a lot of my day was spent on the phone with clients that had purchased parts of these collateralized debt obligations and helping to explain the structure and some of the challenges that those structures were going through and boy was that a way to start your career. So, Zach, you eventually made your way to business school at UC Berkeley, during which time you married your lovely wife, Carol, and you also at the same time developed an interest in environmental conservation. So could you tell us about how this interest in conservation arose and and how you married it with your financial skill set developed on Wall Street? I do need to give a lot of credit to my wife, first and foremost, for bringing me out to California. I, I think this is actually something that didn't start just when we were in business school, Chad, for me, it goes all the way back to the political days. We were working with politicians that acknowledged that climate change was a thing in the 80s and the 90s. So that ended up being a really big part of my upbringing and an important piece of who I was from the very early days. Now, I think you could argue I got well enough away from it working on Wall Street, where if it wasn't mortgage products, it was traditional energy and other things that were obviously a little bit less sustainable. And I think for me, it was a confluence of events. It was my wife starting her doctorate at Stanford that was the first tug out to the West Coast. But it was also a number of conversations with my dad. My folks actually moved from DC up to New York after I'd been up there a few years. And he was working in the sustainable finance space. And we would just have these conversations, not every Sunday, but, you know, maybe once a month of so what are you doing? What, what happens next here? And I was very proud to be working in the energy sector as a big margin business. There was a lot going on. But it, to his point, it wasn't sustainable in the long run. So I want to give quite a bit of credit to my folks, probably a little bit more credit to my wife on bringing me out here, bringing me out to California and allowing me to change my focus. And again, I say that as someone who's pretty privileged, Chad. I don't think a lot of people get the opportunity to go to business school to change their career path. So I like to acknowledge that as as part of my journey as well. Now, Zach, you and I met in business school at Berkeley and we teamed up with Nick and Lee and uh, eventually entered the Morgan Stanley Sustainable Investing Challenge. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and, and how that led to your current venture? Absolutely. Well, one thing I would say just to share for folks that don't know much about the competition, uh, both Kellogg and Morgan Stanley jointly run this. And the idea behind it is to come up with a new investment structure or fund structure that institutional investors could actually put money into that further sustainability really in any way whatsoever. So they're very open from that perspective. They get about 100 submissions every year from 50 to 70 business schools around the country. And what was so exciting about that competition was the ability to put all of our thought and effort, really our whole entire first and second semester of our our senior year, our second year at Berkeley, into this competition and really work on this as if it was a financial product, like the ones that you work with on a daily basis, Chad. And obviously it's become what I work on on a daily basis as well. So that competition really helped us launch what we were doing. It provided us an opportunity to speak at the Milken Institute Global Conference, which was obviously the first conference we at Blue Forest ever had a chance to speak at. And it was such a great competition because we had that 10 minute pitch and then we had an hour and 15 minute panel. So what do you do? We just answered questions. And I think that was the real eye-opener for me because I had worked on a startup the summer before that wasn't successful. So to see all of that interest from these folks that are 
asset allocators that have hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars under management, be so interested in what this could be, that really told me that we have an opportunity here. And we were telling the story before even having our first meeting with the Forest Service. So that's a pretty incredible thing when you think back on it from that perspective as well. And it really requires the vision of people like Dave Chen, one of the co-founders of Equilibrium, and the principal there to say, we need more financial professionals that are looking to use that skill set in a way that it hasn't been used before. And that's what I love about the competition. And that's why I like to give my time back, mentor teams each year. And I like to see more Berkeley teams in the finals. And there was one this time around. So, Yes, absolutely. I also provided some thoughts to them <laughs> the day before their, <laughs> their pitch, actually. So let's talk about the idea and, and what Blue Forest is focused on. Can you tell us a little about the challenges that forests, especially in the Western U.S., are facing nowadays? Yeah, absolutely. So what has happened over the last hundred years or so is that our forests have become tremendously overgrown because through post-European management practices, we've gone to a full-on regime of fire suppression, meaning stopping every fire. The Forest Service used to have what's known as the 9 a.m. rule, which was stopping every fire by 9 a.m. the next day. And they did that mostly with good intentions, right? You know, as the West was being built, whether you're talking about the railroads or mining or other things, a lot of that was built on wood. And the Forest Service was a huge economic development engine for the Western U.S. And they saw each one of these trees as taxpayer dollars that needed to be protected. And and unfortunately, what that's left us with are forests that now hold up to 10 times as many trees as would be naturally occurring And when you combine that with an increasingly hotter and drier climate, you get the fire season that was 2020, but also the fire season that was 2018, which was, people quickly forget, the deadliest in California history. 2017, prior to this year, was the most expensive in history. 2015 was the most acres burned. So as you see, this is not an anomaly. Unfortunately, it's a trend, and it's because we've departed from what was a typical fire return interval in forests like the Sierra Nevada forest that we work in right now, where it was natural for fire to come through those forests every 10 to 30 years or so and clear out some of the small trees in the underbrush. And when we stopped that for 100 years, that's what gave us the fuel buildups that, with a changing climate, um, has really created the fire conditions that are just so dangerous in California and, frankly, across the Western U.S. Maybe can you talk a little bit about how the indigenous communities used to manage the forests and and how that changed when uh, Westerners encroached upon the lands? Yeah, this is a great point. And this is something I've been really fortunate to learn quite a bit more about through my time at Blue Forest and working with a number of different researchers. The Forest Service itself is actually one of the largest, if not the largest, forestry research organizations in the world. And what they and others have found is that the tribal burning that the indigenous communities have done long before there were any European settlers in California really helped maintain a proper or healthy density of the forest. And what you'll see in in these forested areas where there are sites of high cultural importance to indigenous communities, those are often places where these burns would take place. And one of the biggest fears that that I've had throughout this, and I think a lot of other people much smarter than me have, have, have echoed, is that if we start to lose what's known as traditional ecological knowledge, that knowledge from these indigenous groups, that could really set us back in our forest management practices and what we want to do. But I think we're fortunate in some ways that the day that we live in now, there's a tremendous amount of support from the federal government and the state government, especially here in California, to bring back those practices, to teach more people how to do good, healthy fire. And frankly, to get the word out that 
there is such thing as good fire, especially after a year like last year. It's this reinvigorating of the natural fire cycle that will ultimately make these forests more resilient to fire and to a changing climate. So tell us a little bit about the specific forest management practices that we could adopt that would make our forests less prone to the larger, more catastrophic wildfires and and why they're not happening today. Yeah, the good news is we know exactly what needs to be done on the landscape. And frankly, through research, the Forest Service and other groups have been doing what's known as ecological forest management or ecological forest restoration uh, for more than 30 years now. So it's interesting to say I'm, I'm telling you there's a problem with the density of our forests, and I'm also telling you that there's a solution on how we can solve this problem. So why aren't we doing it? Well, the problem is largely money. By the Forest Service's own budget justification, they would need in excess of $80 billion to treat and restore all of the national forest system land that's currently overgrown, unhealthy, or at extreme risk of wildfire. And this is an agency that has an annual budget of about $5.5 billion a year, of which half a billion to a billion maybe goes to this proactive restoration work. So by their own count, this could take up to 100 years of agency funding. And that's time we just don't have. Again, this is a problem of immediacy. So what we've really worked on at Blue Forest is to say, well, first of all, there's other groups that benefit from a healthy forest besides the Forest Service. How can we get them to the table making commitments based on some of the benefits that they receive from a healthy forest or a healthy watershed? But also, how do we allow different types of entities, whether they're federal or state, to commit for longer periods of time? Because as a finance person, I can look at that series of cash flows and say, we can use finance as a tool to bring all that money forward such that we can implement this work more quickly. So at the end of the day, what I want your listeners to take away from this is that this is not a science problem. We have a really good understanding of what needs to happen in the forest and how our forests have changed. This is ultimately a finance problem of how do we make the resources available immediately so that we can start to get our forests in healthier shape and reduce the risk of catastrophic wildfire. So the Forest Service is spending a lot of money today fighting fires, and they're spending increasingly less actually managing the forests in a proactive way that would prevent these large catastrophic fires from happening in the first place. Can you talk a little bit about the other players you're bringing to the table, whether they're state agencies, utilities, community groups, or any of the other folks that are benefiting from this sort of work? And how are you bringing them to the table? First and foremost, I think it's important to understand what are all of the benefits of a healthy forest? Why are we talking about all these other groups? And in a state like California, people may not know this, but about 60 to 65 percent of our developed water supply actually comes from snowpack in the Sierra Nevada. And that doesn't just serve Northern California. In fact, Southern California gets the vast majority of their water from Northern California, from forested ecosystems up here. So when people start to understand the connection between water and our forests, I think that's a really important first step. So if we can see an enhancement in flows, if there's more water available for hydropower generation or downstream consumptive use, whether it's by agriculture or residential customers, that's a real benefit. And in fact, that enhances revenues to a water utility and or an electric utility in that case. But the bigger part of the value here is avoiding the large damaging fires. Obviously, fires destroy infrastructure. They can destroy power lines. Um, they can cause a lot of sediment and flooding into reservoirs, which can then lower the useful life of that asset 
and create enormous expenses for the different utilities or power producers that operate those assets. So that's more on the avoided cost side than on the revenue enhancement side. And that's actually probably dominating uh, significantly in terms of uh, the economic value from that. But, but I also want to go beyond that, Chad, because we need to think about the jobs that this creates. Even before COVID, the county that we're working in, in California, Sierra County, had an unemployment rate of north of 15%. And many of the jobs that are created through doing forest restoration work, the great folks at the National Forest Foundation who are managing this project, they go out and they hire contractors. And those are local contractors for the most part. And the folks that work on these projects might have chainsaw skills, which can do certification in a very short time frame. They could be operating heavy equipment, which requires vocational training and apprenticeships. And it could even be groups that are putting fire on the landscape from that perspective as well. Those are a wide variety of jobs that could be created that pay different rates that require different skills. So I think people should be talking about this more as a job creating opportunity as well. And then the last thing I want to touch on is just air quality, because this is something that we talked about on a more localized level prior to the 2020 fire season. I live in Sacramento. We get all the bad air just sort of goes into the valley, whether you live in Sacramento or Fresno. But I think, you know, 2020 was the first year where people across the Bay Area, across all of California, were talking about the air quality impacts and the impacts on our healthcare system when we're in the midst of a respiratory pandemic. So there's all these different benefits that I think should be called out when we're talking about what is a healthy forest do for us? What are those ecosystem service benefits that are created? So our work at Blue Forest is to engage those stakeholders And we do that through a lot of partnerships. We've got great partnerships with the UC system uh, and with the Natural Capital Project at Stanford that we work with those researchers that have developed different methodologies to understand the change in forest water use, how much more water is available, to model things like sediment transport and flooding risk and how the fire risk has changed before and after treatment. And it's working with those academic groups that we can actually go to the stakeholders and say, here are the benefits to you. And we got to do one more step, Chad, and I think this is an important one, which is both project what we think those benefits are and create a way to credibly measure and verify on the back end that those occurred. But we also need to value them. And that's where our partners at the World Resources Institute come in. They were one of our first partners at Blue Forest. And they do the resource economic work sitting side by side with those stakeholders, which we've realized is a critical, critical piece for success here where they can say, you know your system as a utility operator better than anybody else will. Here's what we think will happen. Help us complete this economic analysis with your input, and let's find out what this is worth to you. Because ultimately, if we're not going to these utilities, to the state government, to others, and saying, this is the investment decision that you're making. You're not just giving money to a forest project because it feels good. This is actually an investment decision that's backed up by these scientists, these economists, that has a much better chance of success. And that's being treated in a way like the investment that it really is, a natural infrastructure investment. And so you pay for this proactive forest management and all these ecosystem services benefits materialize, whether they're on the water side, the, the clean air side, or even on the you know job creation side. How did you bring these various stakeholders together in this model that allows the upfront costs of this sort of work to be paid for, I believe, by private investors for the most part, while the long-term benefits accrue to all the various stakeholders involved? 
Yeah. So when we talk about the forest resilience bond, that's the the name of the financial instrument that we're talking about here. You're exactly right, Chad. This is a public-private partnership in which we allow uh, private investors, which could be in our first project, groups like Calvert Impact Capital or AAA Insurance, market rate investors, but also below market rate or concessional investors like foundations. And both the Rockefeller Foundation and the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation invested through what's known as a program-related investment in this as well. And it was that upfront capital that allowed us to take what would be a 10-year project and hopefully complete that in a four-year timeframe. So we're really accelerating the pace and the scale of the work that's happening on the ground. And then you're right, we contract with the different beneficiaries, which could be the Forest Service, could be water and electric utilities and flood control districts. We were very lucky in the first project because it was all three in one. So that's just one contract. But then also state agencies and eventually some private companies as well. And we put all that cash flow together. And that's ultimately what repays the investors. And from an investor's perspective, the nice thing about this is we get all of those contracts or agreements that can be done in different forms together before we launch the financing. So we're not going out to investors saying, hey, trust us, we can do this, we can get folks to sign up. Our investors can go in the data room, they can look at the financials of the underlying stakeholders here, and they can actually see the contracts and really know what they're investing in. And that helps us reduce risk to lenders, which then means the overall cost of doing these financings can be quite a bit lower. So you've launched one forest resilience bond so far, right? And it was, I think, in the $4 million range. Maybe you can specifically tell us the the investors in that deal. Um, I know you mentioned a couple already. And the payors, you know, those specific entities that are paying for the benefits there. Yeah, absolutely. So I think I mentioned the investors, but you're right. We had $4 million. Everybody was in for an even million dollars. And actually, all of our investors were on the same loan agreement. And the only difference in their term was the economics, the rate of return, because some of those investors had to, by law, uh, be concessional investors. But they had the same remedies in the event of default. I have to make the same reps and warranties as we draw money down from them. And again, those investors are AAA and insurance company, which has been fascinating to work with. And I think that's going to be a big area of growth for us at Blue Forest is working with insurance companies who naturally want to reduce uh, some of this risk, especially in areas where they've written policies. And then having somebody like Calvert at the table was incredibly valuable because they took this product from something that really wasn't institutionally ready and got us institutionally ready all within the same financing, which took a lot of work. But it was a really great process for us because now as we're going out to raise the next forest resilience bond, it's going to be a lot more than $4 million. So having a product that's already been institutionally vetted helps us in a tremendous way. To round that out, the other two investors I mentioned were the Rockefeller Foundation and the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, and they were participating through the program-related investments. Now, on the payor side, obviously the Forest Service is a beneficiary. They make both cash and in-kind contributions to these projects. And the in-kind part is worth just mentioning. I mean, they have staff on the ground that help plan these projects, make sure everything's going according to how these treatments have been planned. So that's a really important piece. But there can also be timber value sometimes in these projects. And the U.S. Forest Service uses a mechanism where if there is any timber value, they can just reinvest that into the project um, and help get more work done on the landscape if any of the species of tree are valuable there. And then the other payors here are the state of California through the California Climate Investment Program, which is actually funded through the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund when Governor Schwarzenegger signed AB 32 back in 2006. 
And then also the water agency. In this case, it's the Yuba Water Agency. And they are operating a 400 megawatt hydropower facility. So quite large. I think it's six or seven largest in, in the West. They're also obviously a water provider to, I think, eight irrigation districts. And they're a flood control district. And that's what that reservoir was initially built for is flood control in those areas. So this was a really good setup where we had one entity that's down at the bottom of the watershed looking at this project up at the headwaters and saying, geez, that's great, but what are we going to do about the whole rest of this watershed? And that's where a lot of this has evolved from. It's gone well beyond the financing to be how do we build these partnerships so that we can create the social license to do the financing on a much larger scale, right? Investors want it to be this big. The Forest Service wants it to be this big. But there's all this work that needs to be done on the ground, usually by local partners, to make sure the local community understands the importance of these forest health treatments and that they're supportive of this. And we've been really fortunate to get that support from many of those local groups. So I want to make sure I'm understanding this correctly. The investors and the partners are coming in with different goals, different objectives, and they'll be satisfied even if there is a fire because it'll be less intense and because they're still able to realize their goals through your work. Is that right? Absolutely. And we, we've, I don't want to get too much into the details of the financing, but we've taken into account the chance that there could be a fire, obviously, especially within the project boundary. And that's one of the reasons why we use a delay draw term loan feature in this. So we're only drawing down capital once we need to pass it along to the group on the ground, the National Forest Foundation, who's the congressionally chartered nonprofit partner to the Forest Service. They're running this project because the Forest Service chose them to, and we're giving them money as they need to pay contractors. And that would be paid back whether there's a fire or not. My bigger fear, though, is that there's going to be a fire in some other part of the watershed before we can actually get to treating it at scale, just given the frequency of fire we've seen in California. And that scares me more than an actual fire in in some of the project areas. But to your point, we're actually going to be starting fires in some of these project areas. Part of the prescription of the treatment here, what's been directed by the Forest Service is actually thousands of acres of what's known as prescribed fire or broadcast burning, which again is used to reinvigorate that natural fire cycle and make these forests more resilient to fire. And I think that's something we're going to see as we look at all the different fires that happened in the state of California in 2020. There will be a number of places where those fires probably went down to ground and did what we would hope they did in areas that have been treated. Obviously, that wasn't enough to stop all the fires, but I think we'll see some, hopefully see some really good indications that these treatments are effective as people go through and and look at those areas that were burned back in 2020. And Zach, you mentioned the social license to operate, and certainly there are equity and inclusion considerations for any type of environmental intervention, including this one. So I think you mentioned how maybe lower income rural communities may be benefiting from this sort of work through the job creation, but maybe you could talk a little bit more about whether it's indigenous communities or communities of color or other vulnerable populations. How are they involved both in the process of determining whether this work needs to get done and where it gets done? And how do we measure the impact of this intervention on them? There's certainly a lot of touch points with indigenous communities. And it's very different. We work with a lot of national forests and a lot of different projects. And there's a real discrepancy between those tribes that are federally recognized and those that are not. In this first project area on the Tahoe National Forest, there are two tribes that are now partners, part of our North Yuba Forest Partnership is the name of our forest collaborative that had a voice with some of the local communities, but didn't have enough of a voice. So finding a way to amplify those voices 
I think is a really, really important part of being successful in these landscapes. Um, I'd love to see that go step further where those tribes and those community members want to is to say, we'd love to see more planning of the projects coming from the people that had been on this land for thousands and thousands of years. And we're starting to see that in a number of places across California and across the West where tribes are not just consulted with, but a much bigger part of driving the processes that we'd want to see from a planning perspective. And I think that's one of the best ways to involve the indigenous communities is saying, how do we go back to what we've had in the past and how can we plan these projects in a way that would earn your respect, right? So I think that's one piece of this. And then can we actually create jobs on the forest for people from all walks of life in all different communities, but especially from the indigenous communities? Can we have more of the contractors be indigenous owned companies that can be getting the work from some of these projects? And I'd love to see more of that. A couple of the groups that we're looking to work with in the future do exactly that. They're uh, nonprofits managed by indigenous communities that hire other indigenous members or indigenous owned businesses. And I think that's a really important piece that, that needs to be a bigger part of this conversation going forward. Absolutely. So it is about the work in the forest. But when we think about these rural communities, there's one other aspect that I think a lot of people miss. Obviously, the risk of fire has grown tremendously over the last 20 years. And when you talk to the insurance sector, the entirety of the last 20 years of profits were knocked out in 2017 alone. And the losses in 2018 were even worse than 2017. So insurance rates have risen dramatically to the point where many people in rural communities can't afford fire insurance. California does have a fair plan, which is offered by the Department of Insurance, but it's something on the order of $10,000 a year after tax money, which is you know not insignificant, right? And I think what people are starting to realize now is that your property value is directly tied to the cost of that insurance. If that insurance gets to be too expensive, you know, you can't have a mortgage without this insurance, right? Then you can't sell your home and then property taxes go down and then the county commissioners have less money or less revenue to work with. So that's a really vicious cycle too that I don't think enough people are talking about. After a community burns, what happens? Do do we try to rebuild there? Do we do something else? What are the implications on the people, the county commissioners that we're asking, charging with managing some of the aspects of these counties? What are they supposed to do? Um, That's a really challenging position here as well. So it sounds like there's intense need to scale this work um, and accelerate it even faster than than you've been able to do thus far. So your first project, I believe, is in the Tahoe National Forest. Where are your next projects planned? Are you looking to expand the current one? You're looking at other forests as well? Yeah, the first thing we really wanted to do, Chad, was to show that in the same watershed, with the same stakeholders, with the same contracts, with even the same investors in the same investment vehicle, we could scale this up. So our next project actually will be with all these same stakeholders on the Tahoe National Forest. So we're going to start marketing that in about a month or so. So we're really excited about that project. And it could be up to maybe $25 million in size. So quite a big step up from the $4 million project. Then we have a number of projects that are under development in the state of California. We didn't just start in California because we're based here. The state of California itself is also the largest funder of forest health treatments. They put out about $200 million a year. And actually through the governor's rebudgeting process that just went through the legislature, they're going to make another half a billion dollars available for forest health treatments. So this is one of the biggest funders 
when you look across the entire Western U.S. from that perspective. The other areas that the Forest Service has asked us to focus on are Oregon and Washington. So we're really focused, Oregon, Washington, California here, which are regions five and six for the Forest Service. And then we've got a handful of other conversations going on in some of the other regions into Colorado, Montana, Arizona, other places like that. Just not as live of an opportunity as what we have in uh, California, Oregon, and Washington right now. But we're excited to take this model. And, and for us, Chad, it's, it's been about how do you scale this? And you scale it by having the same anchor tenant or the same key partner in the Forest Service as the major landowner in every single one of these projects that we're working with because they work with the same budget office. They have the same authorities. You don't have to recreate the wheel every time if you're working with the same federal agency moving from state to state or, or in different national forests within a state. Yeah. And so actually staying on the policy agency side of it, there's a new administration, obviously. They are looking to pass a large infrastructure bill, other policies that could be relevant to your work. Maybe you can talk a little bit about the sorts of policies that could be helpful to scaling the work that you're doing. I think appropriations and funding are obviously a huge part of this, right? When we start to look at our forests and understand that these are actually natural infrastructure, I think there should be a lot more funding that's made available. We actually saw that going back four or five years in California. They passed a law, AB 2480, back in 2016 that actually acknowledged in the water code that these watersheds were part of our natural infrastructure for utilities. So it's really important to see that and to fund this on par with how we're going to be funding other parts of infrastructure, which we know we need a lot of across the board. The other piece of this is something that you see in the Department of Defense or the Department of Energy that Department of Agriculture and specifically the Forest Service just doesn't have, which is the ability to make longer term commitments to projects without needing to obligate all the funds on day one. I don't want to get too much into the weeds nap, but what we're doing with finance is we're bringing forward all those commitments. And if we're hamstringing the federal government on making some of those longer term commitments, there's less of an immediate impact that we can have. So we're excited to scale this from $4 million to maybe a $25 million project. But if we want these to be the $50 or $100 million projects that we know we need to be doing across California and across the West, we're going to need the government, the federal government, to be able to participate in a similar way to how the utilities and state government um, entities are doing it right now. And how is this received by the two parties? It seems there is a lot of no-brainer solutions. Does this enjoy bipartisan support? To the extent that anything can enjoy bipartisan support, I would say anything that has to do with the health of our forests, our water supply, outdoor recreation, generally does have that support. There's differences in how the two political parties talk about forest restoration, ecological restoration, certainly. But I think we got to give a lot of credit to the environmental NGOs over the last 20 or 30 years that have really closed the gap between timber industry, the federal government, and what the environmental groups want to see. And I'm shocked at how much consensus there is from the environmental communities with the federal government on what needs to be happening on these landscapes. That's not true everywhere, but for the most part, it is true. And that's massively different place than where we were 20 or 30 years ago from that standpoint. So yeah, there's a lot of bipartisan support for this. And that's because we've got a lot of states across the West that are purple or or somewhat split from that perspective. So you can imagine there'd be a senator on either side of the aisle that might care about the same state 
and thus might be able to work together to find some common ground and some solutions from that standpoint. But that would be a nice uh, breath of fresh air uh, <laughs> to see some more bipartisanship, right? Absolutely. All right. So now we'll move to our hot seat questions. So please fill in the blank. The most important lesson I learned in 2020 is? How important our teachers are as the parent to a child who was home for many months during the pandemic. If I could do it all over again, I would. Start working on environmental stuff earlier. I mean, I really enjoyed my time working on Wall Street, but I had such a steep learning curve coming into this job and everything I've learned. I've been so grateful to have such a great science team at Blue Forest that has taught me and other partners that have helped me learn the language of science. I wish I had spent more time doing this in my undergrad and coming out of college and before grad school. I would have had a much better base of knowledge and I wouldn't have had to learn quite so quickly. The best investment I ever made was? Oh, it's got to be my wife. I don't know how I could go <laughs> any other way. I don't know if a wife Good is answer. an investment or not, but it's certainly been an enormous investment of time. And like I said, I wouldn't be out on the West Coast in California getting to do these incredible things without my wife challenging my East Coast worldview. So I'll thank her for that and, and many, many other things. Great. And I'm most proud of? Oh, I'm going to be so family oriented. Just my son. And, and this is something like, I didn't know if this would come up in the podcast today at all, but I don't think I fully appreciated longer term permanent things like forests until I had a kid. I don't think I fully appreciate them. I think I grew up around understanding the importance of climate change and sustainability. And that was a big part of my business upbringing as well. But something clicks when you have a kid. Uh, I don't really know how else to explain it, but I've become completely engrossed with this. My son talks about all the people in our company as doctors of trees and water, and he wants to be one too when he grows up. So <laughs> I, I think that's something that you can see the smile on my face right now that just really makes me proud. So now we'll shift to our overrated or underrated segment. I'll say a name of a term or a place, and you can tell me whether it's overrated or underrated in your opinion. Okay, great. Sacramento, California. Oh, man, I underrated it before I moved here. I lived in San Francisco for a bunch of years before I moved up to Sacramento, and I didn't think much of it. I remember I gave my buddy a hard time the whole time I lived in San Francisco about moving to Sacramento. And as soon as we moved here, I was like, I get it. I have a house that's not connected to anybody else's house, and it's not just the floor. That's a really nice thing as someone who grew up in D.C. and then lived in New York and then lived in San Francisco but it's also spring in Sacramento right now, and this has got to be one of the most beautiful places in the country for spring. Everybody takes their garden very seriously. The trees, this is Tree City, USA. The trees are incredible. So Sacramento is massively underrated, but maybe not so anymore because I think everybody from San Francisco is now getting the bug <laughs> and moving here since it's the halfway point between Tahoe and the city and, uh, you know, obviously quick over to Napa and Sonoma as well. But I'm a big Sacramento evangelist these days. Toyota Camry? underrated by everybody, especially mine. I am still driving the same 2007 Camry, the first year of the hybrid, mind you very much. And my, I shouldn't say this before, you know, I have to go drive somewhere because my battery's going to die, but still on the same first battery. And that car's now made it through 5,000 miles of Forest Service roads, thereabouts, I would guess. Um, so yeah, a lot of good road trips with that. Not the best car, certainly not the most valuable, but definitely underrated by people because they never thought it would still be in existence in uh, 2021. I think I've been on one or two of those road trips too. And it, it always got us to where we needed to go. So <laughs> <laughs> definitely underrated. <laughs> 
to me, climate positive means? Thinking about your kids and the long-term sustainability of what it is that we're trying to accomplish here. I didn't for a million years think I'd be working in the forestry space, but when you see a year like 2020 and our forests emit as much carbon as our entire transportation sector in California, you realize the importance and you're trying to go after wherever you think you can make the biggest impact. And for me, that's using this financial skill set that I got to do something I really care about and that could really hopefully move the dial uh, and make us all more climate positive. That's great. I'd agree. Zach, thank you very much for coming in and talking with us today. This is such a great conversation and really excited to learn about the Forest Resilience Bond. Thanks a lot, Zach. Great talking with you. Thanks, Chad. And thanks, Hillary. Really enjoyed it. That was Zach Knight, co-founder and CEO of Blue Forest. Climate Positive is produced by Hannah Armstrong. Tell us what you thought about the conversation. You can send us show ideas by tweeting at us at Hannah Armstrong or send us a note at climatepositive at hannahnarmstrong.com. If you like the show, feel free to give us a rating or share with a friend. It helps others learn about the show and our climate positive mission. I'm Chad Reed, and this is Climate Positive.